When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm really excited for all of you to say hello to Frank Brony. And you know Frank, who has been a very important journalist for more than three decades, over 30 years, including most of which was spent at the New York Times. And Frank's still doing work for the Times and still contributes to Op-Ed and has a newsletter, has worn so many incredible hats, White House correspondent, the Rome bureau chief for the Times, a restaurant critic, and of course, Op-Ed. And now, as well as so many of these credits, a professor at Duke University. Frank is here today because he wrote a book that a lot of people are talking about. It's called The Beauty of Dusk. And I'm going to let Frank explain, but just I want to remind you that you can say hello in person at White Plains Public Library on April 5th. He'll be talking about the new book, and the event is 7 to 8 o'clock. So mark that on your calendar. And Frank tells a story, the very beginning of which we can all relate to. He, for some ailment or not, he wakes up one morning. It was fall, I think October of 2017, and his right eye was all fuzzy. Now, if that happens to any of us initially, what? You've got something in it, you're pulling down your lash, you irritated it, um, women often got mascara in it, but that wasn't Frank's story. It turns out that he had suffered a very unusual stroke that damaged his optic nerve, and that fog across the right side of his vision was real, not psychosomatic, and it was so real that a prominent doctor at the time said it could also happen in your other eye. What could be more frightening than that? And now we have the beauty of dusk on vision lost and found. So it's an incredible story, and most of us have had something that we can find a million excuses for until we can't anymore. And that's what happened to you. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and thank you, Joan. You described it perfectly. Um, you know, we, we uh, as we age, and I was only 52 when this happened. So, uh, you know, it was an earlier encounter with medical crisis than a lot of people uh, are fortunate enough to experience. Many people it comes later. But as you said, you know, these things happen in our lives. And, and the book is about, and my story is about, 
how I um, avoided the self-pity that definitely threatened to consume me, um, how I avoided the fear that definitely threatened to define my life. Um, I feel at the end of the day quite blessed because although I still suffer some difficulties with my vision, although I do live with this risk, about 20% of going blind entirely, this episode um, forced me to think reflect and learn a whole lot about the way I was living my life and the control that I had over my outlook that I'd never learned before. Um, that's why I call the book The Beauty of Dusk. I mean, dusk is a, is a reference both to my clouded vision and to sort of the, the span of the human day. Um, but I came to, to see things. I, I have new vision, Joan, not just in terms of, of worse eyesight, but I have better insight. Um, and, uh, and that's what the book's about. Well, and Frank, when I read the book, I kept saying, I can't believe how adaptable he is and how he wouldn't allow this misery, which was easy to collect and accept, he wouldn't allow this to determine who he was or what was happening. And Frank, you also had a mother who set an incredible example. She had a very serious illness. She had a really bad kind of cancer, but nothing stopped her. She went about her life doing things she had always done, maybe even more. And that was sort of a lesson that probably you didn't think you would have to learn that quickly, but you did. Uh, she, she was so much in my memory, uh, the example of her, the model of her, as I kind of figured out how to move on from this episode in my life. Um, and and I, I, I thank you for saying um, that I seemed unusually uh, exceptionally adaptable. But I really have come to believe, Joan, both in revisiting my mother's story, which is in the book, in collecting stories from people all around me. The book is as much about people I sought wisdom from as it is about me and people who had many different kinds of ailments, not just eyesight stuff, sometimes hearing mm. impairments, sometimes Parkinson's. Um, I, I did find that I was more resilient than I ever thought I would be. I did find that I adapted in ways I couldn't have imagined. But I also honestly believe and believe through all of it, I'm ordinary. I'm not extraordinary. And my what I learned and my message to people is is you are you are nimbler as a human being than you have any idea you just haven't been called upon by circumstances to demonstrate that um, you have coping mechanisms and you have strength that you probably don't realize and so as you go through your life and especially as you age know that take some comfort from that have some reassurance from that um, because we are, you know, Joan, there was a judge, a very distinguished judge whom I interviewed extensively for the book. I tell a story in the book. Um, he uh, ascended to the zenith of the legal profession, despite having been completely blind from his early 30s until his retirement in his 70s. Um, and one evening I walked with him from his chambers eight blocks to the Washington Metro, which we then took to his home to meet his wife for dinner. And he basically led me on that walk through auditory cues, through knowing his physical location, from memorizing it over time. Um, He could get to the metro from his chambers as a blind man crossing streets that had traffic um, all on his own. And I was just there as a fail safe. And after we sat down in the in the Washington Metro on the train, 
He turned to me, Joan, and he said, you know, Frank, starfish can regrow limbs, but that's nothing compared to what people can do. And he's right about that. And that is a central part of my message. And you learned lessons, too, about the power of the brain. But so much of what you write, we relate to that feeling of fear, that how do you step over that? that terror that if so many bad things can happen, now you know that other bad things can happen. Because even in addition to a physical infirmity, which was totally out of the blue, I mean, how many people think about their eyes other than, oh, I'm getting older, my vision is not as good, but not terrible things. You just had another loss, your partner, of many, many years, decided that in his case, maybe enough was enough, but should he leave when you were in a terrible situation? You had to deal with that. You had a lot of loss. So even though you rose above it, it's an extraordinary process that you let go of the fear and the terror of the unknown, which you could not control, and well, you know, taught us yeah. lessons. Well, you know, um, I think I think one realizes in a situation like this, uh, if things go well. And by the way, there are extreme hardships and terrible deprivations that uh, that they can't be um, transcended or navigated just with a positive attitude and a shifted outlook. I mean, there are things too much to cope with. What I was given, I could cope with. Um, and I realized early, and this was so important, that if I gave in to my fear, um, if I let myself sink into a hole of self-pity, it wasn't going to change my circumstance. It was just going to consign me to a kind of living that was more negative and sadder and less fulfilling and less meaningful than if I found a psychological and emotional way to work around fear and self-pity. Um, what's happened hap has happened. <clears throat> Excuse me. What's lost has been lost. Um, and you can grieve that, and you should, at least briefly, but you can stay focused on that or you can do a tally on all the abilities you still have, on all the blessings that remain, on all the pleasures that are still accessible to you. And it just makes more sense as you go through the rest of your life to do that other more, po more positive, more optimistic tally. Mm. And like so many of us, and your career was thriving and everything was okay, even though through your other books, we knew there were many sides to a person. There's the side we see publicly and there's their interior side, which very rarely do we get to take a little peek at an inside life. But you shared that with us with your books about how tough it was losing weight, about feeling like an outsider, about being gay and dealing with this with family and friends. And as a journalist, you understood something which not everyone does, the art of listening, which is how all these people opened up to you in a very unusual way. You know, I was very fortunate to be able to talk with them and to be able to tell their stories. And yes, maybe I guess part of it is because I have learned how to listen and I know how to listen. And you're right. That's an important thing. But there was something else. Um, going on that, that I'd like everyone to keep in mind. We 
we suffer from an excess of courtesy, you know, from a surfeit of politeness. And often with the people in our lives who are struggling or, or who have been through struggles, we often avoid asking them about those. We think maybe they don't want to talk about it. Um, we think maybe we're not really kind of equipped to hear it. But if you invite the people around you to share what they've been through, um, they're often extremely grateful for that. You know, they, they want to talk and they want you to listen. And they often harbor extraordinary bits of wisdom um, that were so foolish not to access. And I just felt like there were teachers all around me, um, and now they're in the book, whom I'd never had the good sense to ask what they had to teach me before. And part of my journey after this medical crisis was asking those questions at long last. And they talked to you. I mean, it was almost like they were happy to share it, to open up, to get rid of it and take everyone on their journey. And if you hadn't done this, we never would have known whether it was your good college friend who, you know, a great life and Parkinson's suddenly rears its head and how she deals with it. And of course, I'm sure everyone has told you about the dog chapter. When you were at your loneliest, <laughs> you convinced your brother to give up a dog that he had adopted. And that was pretty brazen. You know, you <laughs> took this, not a little tiny dog, a dog with a capital oh, yeah. D. I, I was just out with her. Yeah, she's a good 52, 53 pounds. I was yeah, just big. out with her in the woods near my house. Yeah, we were, I was just watching her chase the deer in the neighborhood. Um, yeah, no, I played on my brother's heartstrings and sympathy because I very much wanted a dog in my life again. And I thought to myself, if I, if I act, if, if, <laughs> if I make him pity me, he'll give me his dog, which he did. But he was also an empty nester um, who really kind of wasn't, it was having a harder and harder time doing right by the dog. But the dog is in the book, Joan, and I'm glad you mentioned the dog because I think it can be really important when you go through a kind of crisis like I did and when self-pity is a possible danger, um, when you can become really consumed with worry about yourself, it can be a really smart and good thing to take some of that energy and turn it outward. Maybe in some people's cases, it's turned outward to a cause. I felt like if I were caring for another being, in this case, my dog, Regan, it would redirect a lot of the energy, energy that could be negative energy of dread and worry about my condition. It would redirect that to the generosity of caring about someone, or in this case, some, be, some other being. Um, and I think it was a really emotionally wise and healthy thing to do that helped me get through this. Right. And now, these few years later, when your life to us on the outside seems dramatically changed from a New York City who had fingers in so many pots to living in and around a college campus and teaching and not eating in a restaurant every night, not doing the things that you always did. Who are you? Do you recognize yourself? Is this new you easy for you to deal with? <laughs> Um, this new me is, is a gift from me to me. Um, these were things, uh, you know, slowing down a little bit, trading Manhattan, which I love, but where I'd lived for almost two decades, trading it for a place that was, was different and new and greener and could offer me, you know, steps from my home forest walks. My, the dog and I just did five miles today. Um, these were mm -hmm. things I was always interested in doing, and I thought I'm going to do them soon. 
And I think what I realized after this stroke, um, this stroke which which taught which kind of hammered home to me, you don't know what the future holds, you don't know what your abilities will or won't be in the future. Um, I thought anything I'm thinking about doing soon, anything I'm thinking of doing in a couple of years, well, why not do it in a couple of months? You know. Follow your curiosity in the present. Seize the pleasures you're contemplating in real time, because the future, as we've talked about, Joan, is entirely uncertain. But when you have the medical incident, and we can all reach out and touch that fear of the unknown and go with you on that trip, but when you decide to leave everything in your grown-up life that you've been involved in, to start a very different kind of life. Was there fear in that? Or was the new you, I'm ready, I'm going to embrace it, I'm out of here? The, the new me was ready and I was going to embrace it. And, and it was a measured, calculated, you know, titrated thing. You know, I still, as you mentioned earlier, I still do maintain a fairly strong connection to the New York Times. You know, I'm still writing. Obviously, we're talking about this book. So I did change a lot of the circumstances and certainly a lot of the cosmetics of my life. But I remain a writer. I remain a reader. I remain someone who puts my opinions out in the world. And that through line, that thread of continuity, I think, gave me a feeling of, of, of safety and, and, a, and a grounding that made the changes that I did make possible. Yeah. And we're very lucky that you took us along with you. And is this life, which is an academic life, but still I'm sure very social, is this, does this change the way again you see things and think of things? Or is this a moment in a very interesting journey? I would say all of the above. Um, I do feel that stepping away from New York um, into a, a purple state, you know, where there are some very interesting and diverse political cross currents, I think, I think that has me looking at at some aspects of American life in a new way, and being in the classroom and thinking, what do I want to tell these students? about the world that helps you define and refine for yourself what you think of the world what you what you think about the world and i i i find myself dwelling in a place of 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 nuance and complexity that sometimes just churning out op-ed columns doesn't really reward um i'm getting to see and i'm using an eyesight metaphor here joan but i'm getting to see in shades of gray again um and i think that's appropriate and i think that uh that's right for me right now I'm talking to Frank Bruni, The Beauty of Dusk, on Vision, Lost and Found. And in the book, many different chapters, including a chapter talking about the death of Anthony Bourdain, of Kate Spade, Alan Kruger. And it's funny because they're pushing a documentary on Anthony and it was so appropriate to read it in your book. And of course, you're non-judgmental, but it was really a fascinating look at the inside of these people. And what we saw was so different from the reality. Yeah, there's such an important lesson there. I think so many of us, Joan, go through life um, envying people we see around us, making assumptions 
uh, about them, that they are striding through the world with complete unfettered confidence, that they are on glide paths to their success. But we don't know that. Those are all assumptions. And and more often than not, they're myths. And they're really dangerous, destructive myths, because when we make when we don't recognize that people all around us have struggled, are struggling, carry some pain that we can't see, when we don't recognize that we don't understand our own place um, in the universe of people. And and we we tend to see we're prone to self-pity about what we're going through. And we tend to ask the question, why me? When why, why me? When the real question uh, that is true to what the world is like for most people is why not me? You know, so I thought it was really important to talk about some of those extremely successful people who, in a fairly short period of time, ended their own lives and thus taught us you cannot make assumptions that other people have it easier, that other people have found happiness via a much more direct and immediate route than you have. We don't know the story of other people's lives. We don't know their interiors. And it's important to remember that. No, private suffering is exactly what it is. It's private suffering. And I noted, of course, when you talk about our hardships and you talk about maybe we should have sandwich boards that would reel a kind of reveal a kind of truth. And do people react to that? Yeah, I mean, that's the cha- the chapter of the book uh, that that talks about Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade and is called The Sandwich Board Theory of Life. Absolutely. That's the one that people bring up to me the most. Um, and the concept in there, the kind of the kind of idea I throw out in there, it's just a sort of thought exercise is if we all walked around with sandwich boards that just briefly listed some of the main struggles we were going through or had recently been through, we would all be much less prone to self-pity because we would see that our own struggle um, is is normal and is kind of the default human condition. And we would all be much quicker to empathy and much less judgmental. Um, and boy, could we stand to be less judgmental in, in, in our lives right now in America. That's for sure. But are you as a person, and you're a person whom I always thought following you, reading you, envying you in Rome during those delicious years Mm. that you relished the moment, which is a gift in itself. And it's a different kind of relishing now, but still, I'm sure a great meal still tastes extraordinary. Tastes better than ever. Um, I I hope I relished moments in the past because I've had such a privileged and blessed life, but I definitely relish the moment and the pleasures that come to me uh, in an amplified way now. Um, Just because when this happened to me and I thought about all the times in my life that I felt burdened or I felt disadvantaged or I felt like I was uh, the the object of bad luck, this happened. I was told, hey, you're never going to see out of your right eye again and you might go Mm -hmm. blind. And I realized, man, those <laughs> those complaints I had in the past, those those flights, yeah, boy, was I a jerk. And and I I am determined in the aftermath of this um, to, as I said, tally my blessings, um, to recognize and appreciate the pleasures in a given hour or in a given day, um, because it's just silly and wasteful and spoiled to do the opposite. You can read Frank's book. The Beauty of Dusk, and it's 
on vision lost and found. And I love that you did this. It makes a big difference for all of us. And I wish you all the best luck in the world. And keep on sharing because it Thank does you. make a difference. Thank you, Joan. It's, it's lovely to talk to you. And you take care of yourself. I'm Joan Hamburg, and you're listening to WABC.